who was Homer? So in this episode, we are going to look at questions like, who was he? Why do we read the Iliad? Why should we read it? Did Homer even write the Iliad, right? Um, what translations of the Iliad should we use? And is there any guide? Is there a guide that uh, we can actually look at to explore these questions? So please join us as we look at why should we read Homer? Yeah, so this is a good idea. Like, we should we should talk about who Homer is before we talk about the Iliads, before we start to talk about the Odyssey. That we're gonna like be taking a full year to break down this work. We should probably talk about the author first, right? That w- that would make sense. Correct. So, like, who is Homer? Like, who is this dude? Right. So, if we're looking at the Iliad, uh, the first thing I would say is, um, you know, the Iliad is about the city of Troy. So mm-hmm. we can kind of start there and use that as our kind of guidepost as we work through this. So Troy uh, was said uh, to have fallen in 1184 BC. So 1184 BC, right? Okay. So before our Lord Jesus Christ. So Troy is a city-state, which basically means it's a it's an autonomous nation in one city. So a city-state, or sometimes you'll hear, hear a, a polis, right? The city-state. It's on the western coast of uh, Asia Minor and what is actually today Turkey. And so you have this uh, very wealthy, magnificent, kind of world-renowned city-state named Troy. And Troy falls, right? And so this is what the Iliad, kind of as a general introduction, is about, right? It's about the fall of Troy. So when we're looking at um, the fall of Troy is 1184. Homer is not until about 850, Okay, so can you give me like some kind of reference point of like what's going on maybe even in the Bible or like what's happening like so that way I can kind of... Yeah, that's a good point. So we have, um, if you look at like 1184 BC, what's going on with like, say that's the Greeks, what's going on with the Hebrews, a good guidepost would be King David. So King David, okay. like the the zenith, the, the height of his uh, reign in Jerusalem is 1000 BC roughly. Mm-hmm. So we're just prior to Israel like venturing off into a monarchy. So they have their first okay. king Saul, then David. And so we're if you look at the Hebrew history, that's where we are. So Troy falls right in that same time period, right? Okay. That's kind of the ancient history that we're looking at. Homer then comes around probably around 850 BC is where he is. So the um, one thing to look at is like the classical Greeks Right, so we think of classical Greeks. We think of Greeks in like the the 300s, right? So we're gonna think of like mm-hmm. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Like when we think ancient, when usually when we say ancient Greece, that's what we think of. Right? Sure, that's these, what my mind goes to. Yeah, right. We think of these like beautiful colonnades and these buildings and etc. So one thing to think about is that the the tr- the fall of Troy, the Iliad, was actually already quote unquote ancient history for the classical Greeks. So they looked back okay. on it as part of like their ancient history. So you have like the, the fall of Troy, say around... It's the, the ancients, ancients. The ancients, ancients, right? Exactly. So it's like around, you know, say 1184 BC, you have Homer in 850, and you have the classical Greeks around 300, 400. So they're looking back through the story, right, as kind of a collection of their own uh, ancestors. And so... When you look at like who Homer is, um, it's hard for us to actually know a whole lot about him. Uh, he is Greek, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. He is probably um, what they would call like a bard, which means um, someone who recites oral poetry, 
particularly like the great deeds and histories of a people. So imagine like an aristocratic class of, of people gathered around feasting, you know, enjoying life. And then this bard is going to come up and tell uh, originally what would have been a uh, memorized or at least a story that's like malleable that he can kind of uh, form on the fly, mm-hmm. right? And he's going to tell the story to these people. And that's, that's originally what uh, the story of the Iliad was. It's originally a oral rendition. It's a, it's a poem, right? It's recited out loud about the histories and the great deeds of the Greek peoples. Yeah, this is, this is like even hard to, to fathom a little bit that their, their, their mind was so well-formed and organized to, to be able to memorize such things, right? Like there's no way in today's world that I could, I could memorize this at least. And maybe I'm speaking out of turn for, for everybody else <laughs> of our listeners, but like there's no way I could sit here and memorize this whole thing. But this was something that was normal. This is something that was uh, very regular that was happening in this day and age, there was nothing written. Everything was oral. Correct. And actually this is, if I recall correctly, so like Homer's coming in really on the the front edge, the cuff of things being reduced to writing, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you think of Homer, one of the things that's interesting is that we can have a few preliminary observations. One, he did not invent the story, right? The story is, right. is presented as history. Uh, two, even the story of Troy, the Iliad, existing as a poem predates Homer. So one way you can look at it is like this story was known to these peoples Mm -hmm. and this story was passed down through these bards and Homer's mastery is then not necessarily in like inventing the story or sitting down and writing it out of nothing, but rather his mastery is actually pulling all of these things together, right? right? And kind of weaving together this tale because then when you read it, at least in, in my opinion, I think, and you see the kind of the genius that is Homer he can take all these things together, but then what comes out of it is this very coherent story that has a lot of layers, right? You can say there's a lot of right. intentionality here. Mm-hmm. So he either, uh, you know, writes it himself or, you know, there are traditions that he's blind and things like this. I think that kind of plays into him do you being... Think, do you think he was? I don't know. I have no idea. It, it's poetic. I like it. Right. I like it to a certain degree because it's poetic. Um, you know, he's, he's this bard, he's blind. And so what he's actually doing is, you know, he's just mastered this tradition. Mm -hmm. He's mastered all these stories and he recites it to like a scribe, right? Mm -hmm. Who's going to, you know, write these things out. Do you know how many like manuscripts that we have of the Iliad? I I do not. Um, when they put them down into writing, at least because they start to have them, um, on like papyrus scrolls and things like this, when they start to put them down, one of the theories is is that um, that's where the twenty four books of the Iliad oh, come from. Okay, right. So the twenty four book because it wouldn't have been in a book, right? There would not oh, have been. Man, a, that would have been so does frustrating. That make sense? Yeah, that would have been so frustrating too if you would have seen like you get all of them and then like you miss book nineteen, like you're <laughs> right. like missing book nineteen. You're like, what happened? Right. So you got this. You've got. Um, so originally, those would have been the different scrolls in theory, right? That's one theory that that there were twenty four. It took twenty four scrolls. Okay. To actually like you know reduce this. Um, to writing. So then the Iliad, you know, if Homer's at like 850, you know, the Iliad might be coming to us down like 725, 675 BC. Okay. Right. Um, So about 600 years before Christ, we're getting this. There's, it's interesting too, if you look at the text, um, and if anyone's actually kind of like ventured ahead and started to read it, there's these little things um, when he introduces characters, uh, there's going to be all these little things like 
you know, if he says Hera, he's going to call her like white armed. Or if he talks about like Menelaus, the king of Sparta, right? He's like Lord of the war cry. Uh, Hector. He gets very creative. Yeah, they're very creative. Um, You know, Hector's, you know, breaker of horses. Achilles. kind of a lamer one. Well, horses are somewhat important at this time period. Yeah, right? but I mean, you get like, you know, great warriors and right. great, you know, you get all these like really cool adjectives right. to describe somebody. And then you got, yeah, they get the guy who's the tamer of horses. You know, it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's a good thing to be. It's also a good good thing to be a cobbler, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. like at that time. Yeah. But so, and sometimes too, I mean, you have to, this is kind of the, the genius of it. You have to watch these because it's kind of easy for the mind to become somewhat numb to them because you're like, okay, this is clearly some kind of space filler right right is that is that what it is well okay so two thoughts before i forget so one what i was going to mention is is i think they really have to be paid attention to because he 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 does use them to give insights into the character and sometimes he contrasts them right so uh as you say the the lame uh you know breaker of horses for hector we might explore later whether there's some meaning behind that but then later on achilles right so hector's with uh, the trojans achilles is with the Greeks is known as the breaker of men, right? Mm. So if you watch, there's he's making these like comparisons. We have to ask ourselves why, but they uh, they're called epithets. Uh, these little epithets, these little like epithets. epithets. It's kind okay. of a fun word to say, yeah. epithet, yeah, yeah. right? And these little phrases, and what they originally are, is they're these uh, little phrases that allow the bard who's reciting this orally to fit people's names into lines of poetry while still keeping the meter. It also gives mm. him like space fillers as he's like thinking of things and what the like next line is. So if like everyone's name always just comes with like this pre-baked, you know, little introduction basically, mm-hmm. like white-armed Hera or Odysseus is a mastermind like Zeus. It gives you like you already get like six or so words there that the bard already knows are coming hmm. and then he can like play around with it. Okay. So Homer... So you think it's also like... So it's a memoriz- memorization tactic and then mm-hmm. also like to help with cadence? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And so I think one thing is it's like Homer receives these from the oral traditions, but I don't think they're reducible to simply... Um, oh, th- they're just space fillers. Okay. I think he uses them to teach us something about the character and he plays around with them to contrast and compare different characters throughout the story. Yeah, and I mean, as, you, as we go... Uh, throughout this podcast, you'll, you'll realize very, very quickly that ancients are always intentional with their with their writings, right? It doesn't matter what, mm-hmm. what it doesn't matter who who it is. And the ancients, like, and maybe that's just because you know paper was uh, a hot commodity at the time, and like you, you had to make sure you utilize it the best you can. But everybody, every word is very intentional, and yet if you don't take uh, note of it, you're going to miss something. Yeah, in a lot of ways, you read Homer. Uh, the same way that you read scripture in the fact that scripture doesn't really give any unnecessary details, right? So like most mm. of the time when like scripture introduces a character, they don't really tell you what the character looks like, right? They don't tell you like this is the color of their hair, this is how tall they are, they're big. But if scripture does happen to start telling you that, there's usually a reason, right? That character is being right. contrasted with something or it has yeah. something to do with their virtue or, you know, these types of things. Mm-hmm. Homer is very much the same way. Right. If we find him kind of giving us some details, it, it should alert us to the fact of like, why is this important? Yeah. Not that everything I think is reducible to some kind of like esoteric meaning. Uh, you read the Iliad, people get hit with rocks in the face and both their eyes pop out. Yeah. Right. And we're not going to sit there and think about like, oh, what, the, what is this? Does that the, mean? Yeah. Right. What is the spear to the intellect, to the eye? Right. Like right. It's, it's maybe not going to happen. 
But I do think, though, once you get used to his writing, you'll notice for some reason when he slows down the pace and starts giving detail, there's we, like, you know, the flags should go up. Something's going on here that we should pay attention to. Yeah. So we're going to spend a whole year on Homer, which is a long time, obviously. And this is going to be something that, like, if you're going to read it with us, which I highly recommend, especially, you know, listen to our episode that we did, like the importance of small groups, like the importance of getting together and reading good texts. Why? Like, why are we going to spend and dedicate so much time to reading Homer? Yeah. Because like, there's a lot of other things we could read. Correct. Right. You know, that, right. why are we, why are we going to spend so much time on him? Yeah. Why do most all great book lists start with Homer? Right. No, it's, it's an excellent question. And, I, and even to push further, why not start with like Confucius? Why sure. not, why not yeah. start with like the Enuma Elish? Right. Why not burn everything down and start with something that was written 10 years ago? Right. I mean, why, why do we read the great, the, these great books. So Homer really is the first great book, uh, assuming we, we kind of put a caveat on sacred scripture, right? Because I think sacred scripture should be read alongside the great books, and in, it's incorporated in most great books programs. But we'll say that Homer really is like the first great book. In a certain way, I think just on a natural, not a flat level, but just like on a natural observation level, like we are broadly in the inheritance of Greek culture, right? I mean, Greek culture mm. plays this very particular role in the West, right? We look to them, you know, and so you say, okay, well, we trace, I think, just like a historical lineage back to them. Mm. And if you're going to start understanding the Greeks, which most people are going to jump to say, well, you know, should we understand like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, right? These types of things, which are good. Really the first, you know, major cornerstone of that is going to be Homer, because you have to realize that there's like, what, 300 years, 500 years between the two? And so, I mean, think about that for us. Like if we're studying something that's like 500 years old, right? So we have to kind of keep in mind, again, that when we talk about the classical Greeks, like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they're looking at Homer and the Iliad as basically their ancient history, right? These are their, you know, forefathers. Okay, yeah. I mean, there's almost, what, 700 years, 800 years between when Troy fell and, you know, when we're, some of these guys are walking the earth. So they're in dialogue with Homer. Mm-hmm. So if you think like, well, I would rather read like, you know, Socrates or Plato or Aristotle, these kind of guys. Well, if you read like Plato's Republic, he's heavily in dialogue with Homer. Right. Homer, and we, it's hard for us to think about today, but like this was their type of education insofar as poetry educates Mm-hmm. Right. It, it might not be like, you know, maybe formally, but also just like it shapes the culture. So like if you have Athens, right, the polis, the city state of Athens, like their youth are reading Homer and Plato is noticing. Right. And Socrates is, is noticing that then that has a formative aspect on the youth. Right. They've received this poem. Mm. And so so he's in dialogue with this and his works. Mm-hmm. And so we really just start with Homer because like, okay, well, we want to understand what he's in dialogue with, right? You kind of just keep pushing back until you hit a beginning because like who's Homer in dialogue with? Well, nobody, right? right? He's in everything di- is oral at this point. Right. So he's in dialogue with, you know, ancient myths and people groups mm-hmm. that are already lost into this kind of like very mystic, um, you know, time period, which the Iliad kind of mentions, right? It mentions things like, the men before us were so much greater and stronger right. than us, right? When gods walked the earth and these kind of things. So we start really with Homer, you could say like in a, a historical aspect, right? Where it's like, okay, well, we're, we're kind of downstream from the Greeks in Western culture. We've always looked to them, et cetera. And I think that's, that's fine. I think that's mm-hmm. somewhat of a flat 
reading of it. Because I think then you you would have difficulty with like, okay, well, what if, you know, what if I grew up in a different culture, right? Does that mean like then I do start with Confucius or I do start with the Enuma Elish? And those texts certainly have a lot of truth in them, right? They have right. observations. They have things that they can convey. You know, does Homer, is it just accidental, right, that I happen to be like born in a country that considers itself the West, mm-hmm. therefore I look to Homer, right? right? And I think, that, I think the answer to that is, is no. I think there's something very special going on here. And I think that one way to look at it is, is that you have this kind of thread of Greek thought moving through history. So you have Homer, and you, as we've you know mentioned, and you have like all these Greek playwrights that you can read, and then you get into you know Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Well, then Aristotle tutors Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great is going to have this kingdom, right? That he's mm-hmm. going to take over the known worlds, and he's which is going to include Israel. And so what happens then in this time period is you get a convergence of this Hellenized Greek culture within the Hebrew culture of the Old Testament. And so Pope Benedict talks about this in his kind of magisterial uh, Regensburg address that he gave in 2006 about you really have to watch these two threads, these two particular cultures, the Greeks and the Hebrews, and they come together. And sometimes they come together in incredibly violent ways, Okay. Right, so if you look at like um, if you look at Maccabees, like if you've read First or Second Maccabees, uh, that's a war between the Jews and the Greeks, mm-hmm. and there is no mutual enrichment there. There's no like, hey, we're dialoguing, like this is great. Uh, I mean, this is some yeah, seven sons died. Yeah, there, I mean, there's just there's obviously these kind of proto martyrs. There's just brutalities, right? Right. Yeah. And so there it's like, well, this doesn't look like there's any harmony here. This is just a violence. But at the same time, you then also have other things happening. You have um, Old Testament books written right around this time period of, say, the Book of Wisdom, right? You have uh, Sirach. And these books are, like, written in Greek. These books are dialoguing with the Greeks. Like, you know, Book of Wisdom, just as an example, you know, it's starting to make distinctions between different types of pagans, which we don't really see in the Old Testament, right? It's like, okay, we're Israel, and the rest of everyone's a pagan. Mm-hmm. Like, they're making distinctions between, like, the pagans that worship the false gods, right? These woods of, like, wood and stone, very Old Testament-esque that we'd be familiar with. But then they're also noticing, but there's also these other pagans that seem to be seeking, like, the one true God. They just seem to be seeking these a monotheistic God that they can observe from nature alone. And, and Israel's now bumping into this culture. A lot of those guys died. Right. <laughs> um, like Israel is now bumping into this culture that seems to be seeking the same things it is, but through reason. Right. So like, for instance, like in the book of, I'm pretty sure it's the book of wisdom. It could be wrong though. It also lists the four natural virtues, right? So you have prudence, mm-hmm. justice, temperance, and fortitude. Those are the exact same four that you find in Aristotle and with some modification in Plato. So what you're seeing is, is all of a sudden these two cultures come together that I think like in, in, in the best sense of the way in, in a charitable reading is that they're both seeking the same thing. The Greeks are seeking God via their reason to understand the world, that the world is known. Okay. And Hebrews are coming to seek the world through faith. Okay. And what happens is, is that these two cultures come in dialogue with one another. And what Pope Benedict says is that there becomes this mutual enrichment, that this that this Greek reason and Hebrew faith are coupled with one another, and it starts to create this culture, particularly under Roman order, right? So then the Romans come in and conquer everybody. And so you have like these three groups, the Greek reason, the Hebrew faith, and Roman order, and this tills the soil, if you will, 
uh, of the world for the reception of Jesus Christ. So St. Paul tells us that Jesus came in the fullness of time, mm-hmm. right? Providence, like Jesus, you know, it wasn't accidental when Christ came. He came when the world was ready to receive him. And so if we really take this seriously, and I think we should because look at things like the Septuagint, mm-hmm. right? The first canon of Old Testament scripture, mm-hmm. which is like, say, 250 B.C., is written in Greek. The New Testament, written in Greek, right, predominantly. And so I think sometimes we forget how much these cultures actually enriched one another, right? Mm-hmm. St. Paul's having references back to Septuagint when he's talking about their scriptures, right, about, um, you know, these types of things. And so what Pope Benedict points out is, is that this gave in the New Testament a very distinct characteristic um, to the, the coming of Jesus Christ and the foundation of his church, the Catholic Church, right? That all of a sudden it taught us that faith and reason are in harmony with one another. It told us that faith and reason, as Pope John Paul II would say, right, they are the two wings on which we're going to ascend to God. Okay. And so just like you would start with Genesis to understand the Hebrews, you start with Homer to understand the Greeks. Like that's where we pick up this thread, right? Okay. So I think that in that, in that, the incarnation, uh, the coming of Jesus Christ into history, mm-hmm. which we have to take right as a providential act, not something that's accidental, and also not something that uh, we can do again today, right? We can't reinculturate the gospel again, right? It had right. this very definitive act in history. That becomes uh, our guidepost. That becomes like, okay, this this is what is important to understand Jesus Christ. And if we do that, then you have Hebrew faith, Greek reason coming together, and if you want to understand the Greeks, you start with Homer. Okay, well, that makes sense. So if you are going to have the perseverance to do this with us, the fortitude uh, to do this with us for 52 weeks, 40, what, 48 weeks, I guess? Yeah, 48 weeks. 24 books in both. The Iliad and the Odyssey. Correct. Uh, One way, one, one thing to do to make sure you you know, one mistake to avoid, I guess, is the wrong translation, <laughs> right? Because right. like, uh, you can die on a vine trying to read this, and it could just end up being uh, just brutal trying to figure out what is going on right. based on the translation alone. So there's a couple of things that we, we, we should probably talk about, like what, what translation sh- are we going to be using and why we picked it? And then also, if we're reading it in a group, one thing that we need to make sure that we have is reference points to be able to talk about, right? So we need to make sure that we do have uh, the numbers on the sides of the margins in order to be able to reference as we go through Correct. Uh, the book. So what translation are we using? Okay, so yeah, a few excellent points, a few things that we should parse out. The one that I think we are going to have the most recourse to is this one. You have it as well, right? The Iliad translated by Robert Fagels. Mm-hmm. So there you go. It's a wonderful book. Uh, it also has a, an excellent introduction and notes by Bernard Knox. So it comes together. This is a Penguin classic, I believe. It's published really well. It's a wonderful book. Uh, it has plenty of room to take notes and to mark up. As you can tell, mine is very marked yeah, up. Yeah, mine's all, mine's all sorts of marked up. Now, I guess we should probably give this, like... Fair warning, right? This is the first time that I'm reading, that I've read this. I'm reading through this with you guys, right? This is my very first time that I've, uh, I'm reading it. Uh, you've read it several, you've read it a couple times. This will be my third time to read it. So okay. yeah, we had, we had a great books program when I was at Ave Maria University, um, but it, it began with philosophy. So we started with Plato and Socrates, right? We didn't believe, we didn't start with the poetics. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, this, so as, as we go through this, um, uh, I will be learning with you guys, trying to, trying to 
to read these stories. And the reason, one of the reasons, I mean, we've talked about this on another episode, but the, one of the reasons why I want to do this is because I want to learn this so I can pass it on to my children. Because I think right. it's very important. Yeah, right. we have, um, you know, we have our small group that we're reading the Iliad with, right? right? A um, bunch of men come over to my house Sunday night. We read this together. You know, when we kicked it off, we had 12 guys, mm-hmm. right, in total. Mm-hmm. Probably half, I think, had never even read it before. Right. And it is interesting that I then think also half the group are fathers who understand in some level, like, you know, I've been deprived a certain level of education, right? right. Like, I'm, I, so, I mean, very intelligent, right? Some are doctors, some are lawyers, some, et cetera. Right. Um, you know, and I would throw some my are so- even communications directors. <laughs> some are even DOSIS <laughs> and communications directors or, you know, haphazardly somehow became chancellors. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, and I include myself in this too, right? So I'm a, I'm a convert, mm-hmm. right? Came over, um, across the Tiber over from Protestantism. So like I didn't convert until after my undergraduate and, you know, despite going through high school and undergrad, like we had no recourse to the classics, mm-hmm. right? This, it was just, I mean, it was lucky if we read a book that, you know, was older than 20 years. Right. Um, even my undergraduate was called Theological Historical Studies simply because we read anything prior to 1900, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, just completely, you know, this kind of newer is better, everything's great right now. We all have iPhones, like Google things or use AI. Like, why do we need to go back and look at something that was written 2,500 years ago? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that um, a lot of these men then in the group are, I I mean, I think it's kind of, it was humbling and I think it's kind of a beautiful thing as they're part of their fatherhood is that they want to read this before their children become of age. Because the Iliad is the first book your kids are going to read, you know, really in like, say, freshman year of high school. They're going to read the Iliad to start off the great books, Mm -hmm. right? And it keeps your attention because it's it's not a giant bunch of philosophical debates and things like this. The gods are coming down. The gods are jealous. Like, things are going on. People get speared in the face. Like, right. you know, I mean, there, there's things to keep your attention, right? It starts off with rage. Right. and We don't even know what's going on yet. We don't even know who Achilles is or who's Agamemnon. Like, right. we don't know any of these people, and they're already fighting, and the gods are fighting, and everyone's fighting. Right. And so it keeps their attention while also introducing them to, you know, what we call the perennial truths, right? right. These, these perennial questions that we need to ask ourselves that are just as relevant for us as it was for them. So, you know, I think that, I think that's a beautiful thing to read it, to then pass it on, um, you know, to your family. One of the things, that's one of the reasons I got started in the great books was actually say, I want to form myself in a certain way and I want to be able to pass that on. And now my children are going to a classical school. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, now I'm kind of feel like I'm playing catch up to even keep up with where they are. Right. Sure. Yeah. So. Okay, so circling so, back. Yeah. So, the, we're, so we're, we're doing Fagels, but there's also. So there's Latimer. Right. Uh, Richard Richmond. Sorry. Latimer. Uh Another great text. So we have recourse uh, to him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about it, but our guide that we have on all these questions on the Iliad to kind of lead people through it. This one's Samuel Butler, I believe. Correct, which I think is like a late 1800s translation. So and there's also Alexander Pope. Alexander Pope. So Alexander Pope has like the first um, real, like beautiful English translation of the Iliad. Uh, it's hard to read. It for is, me. Like it is I, very difficult to read. I read the first page and I was like, yeah, this isn't for me. <laughs> yeah. And so I mean, it's pretty. I mean, it's, be- it's beautiful to listen, like to read. Mm-hmm. But I finished it and was like, I'm not sure what's going on. Yeah, I think Wordsworth has a translation of um, the Divine Comedy. And it's absolutely beautiful. And 
I've even read the comedy several times and I still can't figure out what he's talking about right, as it goes through there. So, right. and most of your like, like this one is like this beautiful hardback, et cetera, that's affordable. Most of those are utilizing some translation that's in the common domain. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be an older translation, which might be difficult to keep up with. So I would highly recommend uh, Fagel's is the translation that we're going to be quoting from, probably using the most. Uh, we pull from that one for like notes, the guide, things like this. Mm-hmm. Latimer, I'm pretty sure, is um, the text they read at uh, Thomas Aquinas College in California, kind of this great books school, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, great books in the best sense of that term. And so they're reading Latimer, also has a really good introduction as well. So those are the two that I would I'd probably recommend you pick up you know, one of them. Uh, the other thing, as you mentioned, and I, I just want to reiterate it, particularly if you're trying to read this in a small group or you're going to, you know, follow us in the podcast and say, hey, where are you guys talking about? Is whatever translation you do pick up, there's these little numbers off on the side of the page and they're the line numbers. So there's, there's you know, 24 books mm-hmm. and the book's broken down into line numbers. And if you're following along with us, whatever translation you have really has to have those numbers or you have whole books and we're going to be talking about stuff and you can't follow, right? So we had right. one, we had one person in our group show up with a translation. They didn't have those numbers. And they basically just shut their book and listened the whole time because they couldn't keep up with it. Right. So it's just a small distinction, but something I think you should watch. And a lot of the classic texts, particularly ancient texts, have that. And I'd always err on finding a text that has those numbers um, because they just, they help tremendously. Okay. So not only do we have uh, the Fagel's translation, we're going to be marking up in our books, you know, making notes, things like that. But what uh, what else are we going to have to accompany us uh, through this uh, story? Right, so we're we're going to we have a guide, right? We actually have a uh, written out guide that you can go uh, to the website, you can find, you can download. Um, thegreatbookspodcast.com. Thegreatbookspodcast.com. Very good. <clears throat> and so it's question answers. We've put together this guide in a question answer format. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to handle a lot of things we talked about today, just like the preliminaries, who's Homer, what's the Iliad, like how do I know these things. has a lot of citations, so if you want to drill down into like, you know, what are some sources I can look at. Yeah, take some deep dives. Yeah, I mean, if you're, you know, a little freshman at college and you just got to sign the Iliad, like here you go, happy birthday, like here's all your citations, here you go, right, like this yeah. is how it works. You're um, welcome. Yeah, you are welcome. And so, uh, and then we'll have a certain amount of questions, uh, depending on like the book and how complicated it is per book. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, each book will kind of open up with what just happened. Like what's, what's just like a summary of the narrative, right? right? So what's going on in this book? What should we know? Who are the main characters? And then it'll just be question and answer, just kind of like picking out some of the, um, themes, the perennial truths, things that we should be drawing from the text, right? Hey, did you pay attention to, why this guy said this, or do you notice that he said this, but now right. he's doing that, like helping you to track through the text. Cause it is a poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, sometimes how it expresses things, we would say, right. Poetically, right. It's not a prose. It's not directly, um, you know, uh, always telling you exactly what Homer is trying to actually convey. Mm-hmm. So you have to have an attentive reading as you kind of read through these things. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, a lot of us, um, you know, uh, even if you've read it before, the Iliad's a text, like for me, this is my third read-through, uh, reading it with you guys, which I, I, I'm delighted to do. And I think that honestly, this is the one that that I have enjoyed the most. Yeah. This is the one that I think it's like come alive. One, because we're, we have the guide, we have a small group, we're coming together in a fraternity to read these things, but also just because I've read it multiple times. Like the first time you're kind of just trying to track the narrative, like it right. starts off in the middle, like what is going on? Right. And so... There's who's like, this person who's that? If you're not even familiar with the mythology, you know, that's another mythology is another big deal. Like, you know, because uh, I'm not, you know, this is another thing that I'm, you know, learning mm-hmm. as we go. And so as 
as I was reading, I was like, okay, hold on. Who is this person? Who's that person? And so as, as, we, as I've been going through, this is another point that we, we, we make a, a lot in this podcast is the importance of tracking the narrative and writing it down, taking notes in your book so that way you can be little, like just a little memory jogger, like, oh, yeah, this is what's happening as you're, as you're tracking through the story. Uh, it's really important to, to do. Correct. So two things on that. One is if we're recommending books, I would recommend um, – uh, Edith Hamilton's mythology, the timeless tales of gods and heroes. This is like, this is a 1942 classic. This is like the classic encyclopedia, even though that makes it sound more flat than it actually is. It has a lot of life into it. Nerd. Um, <laughs> but it's, and it actually includes, it's, it's, it says, it's funny because it's like gods and heroes. And I think it's like 98% the Greek uh, culture and it has like a few pages on Norse, okay. but this is uh, this is what I keep. If I'm reading the Iliad and I'm like, wait, who is this god? Or sometimes because Homer's audience, which is something actually we need to talk about, right? Okay. Homer's audience knows these gods and knows these stories. These right. are ancient stories to them. Right. So like he doesn't always like parse all of this out. Mm-hmm. And so this has been a wonderful. Um, this has really been a wonderful kind of like supplement as I'm reading through it and I come up it's like, wait, who's Hephaestus? Like, why does Zeus have this? Like, what is Athena the goddess of exactly? Like, she seems to be playing multiple roles. Mm-hmm. And also, even if you're really familiar with, you know, classical, you know, mythology, um, some of it's different in Homer's time. Sure. The right. stories change, right? So like Hephaestus, right, the, the smith god, the fire god, he makes these artifacts and weapons. In the Iliad, uh, he's married to one of the three graces. Mm-hmm. In the Odyssey, just even the next book by Homer, he's married to Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. So these myth, the mythology is also kind of developing. Mm-hmm. And so it's this Edith's book is a just phenomenal reference guide. Um, the other thing I would mention that you brought up is uh, writing in your book. Mm-hmm. Write in your book. Like, get a pen and write in your book. And yeah, when, I, when you first told me that, I was a little scandalized, to be honest with you. <laughs> because it's like, right. uh, I still I still haven't been able to do it in the Summa. Like, I, I still have not gotten... I know that it's it's a good thing to do. It, it, I've seen the benefits of it. I'm very pro writing in your book. I still can't do it with the Summa yet. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll uh, you know, continue to grow and, and make my way there. Yeah, I think that... Yeah, I think... Here's the thing. You read a great book to reread it. Right. Okay, so your first time reading it what you're doing is you're like, I'm going to help future Adam, mm-hmm. right? Future Adam will read this text again. Mm-hmm. He's going to read it by himself. He's going to read it in a small group. He's going to read it to his children. Like at some point he's going to read this. Right. And what you're doing is, is you're really creating a map as you go through the text. And I think where people get stumbled is they're like reading and they're like, what they think they have to write down is like, I had some brilliant insight into Homer right. and I have to capture my brilliant insight on the page. And because I don't have brilliant insights or this might be stupid, I'm not writing anything down. Right. And I really, I, I really think that's a misread. I think what you do is, is that, so some really basic things I do is I tend to put like little circles around little squares around who's even talking right, right, right now. Just like, so if the character just shifts, track. yeah, just the track, right. because then like, particularly if you're in a small group, Right. And someone says, okay, well, I really liked what this person said. And you open your book and it's just blank. Like there's nothing there. Like you've got to give yourself little signposts. You've got to give yourself like tracking things. So like, you know, I'm going to mark like who's speaking, right? Just as I go through it, not because I'm doing anything that's like anal retentive or because like I have to mark in it, but simply because it helps me track like what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I can use my intellect 
like not to keep track of who's speaking and not to keep track of like this back and forth, but rather like I just mark that and I know it and I move on and I can really maybe try and pay attention to some of the deeper layers that are going on. And also it's very helpful. You know, a lot of people are like, well, I can keep track as I read through. Congratulations. I'm glad. Like, so can I. But when you want to go back and look at a chapter, like, wait, why did Zeus just do this? Didn't he just tell so-and-so a little bit ago that like... The exact he, opposite? Right. Well, then you start flipping through your book. Like you can, you can track, you look at your page and you immediately know what the dialogue is right. as opposed to if it's just blank. So I would, un- and I'd do that. I'd underline things. I'd, I'd put little asterisks out to the side, particularly when there's major plot points or like you'll notice like in the Iliad, people make oaths. They make promises to the gods. The gods make promises to them. Anytime that happens, you mark it because mm-hmm. what you're getting is structure to the text, right? Like they're going to make this one little oath. They're going to make this promise. And that promise is going to echo throughout the entire book. Right. So or when I, momentum's shift. Right. I mean, that's another one that I try to make sure to mm-hmm. understand. Like, where, like, like between the armies between and things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, oh, the, the momentum is now with with the Trojans. You know, um, that way I can I get I'm tracking who's who's winning and what, and that helps as you go understand what the, uh, what the gods are doing, what the what the army is doing, and it just is very helpful. Yeah. So I just if you're not used to it, I I would just do it. Like, no one's gonna take your book and judge your notes. Like, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll, like right out, <laughs> Adamite. Like, you know, look, like write out questions. Right. Like, what does this mean? Why did he do this? Right. And I think that's great. And then as you go through, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, what's the worst thing that's gonna happen? You pick up the Iliad here in like five years, and you read it again. And you're like, man, these were dumb insights. You know what that means? That means you grew. Right. That means you matured. You had a maturation of your intellect. Right. I pick up certain books. I read my introduction to the intellectual life was mainly C.S. Lewis because for whatever reason that was the only intellectual we were allowed to read is you know evangelical charismatic amalgamations of whatever I was. Right. So, you know, I read that. Like, I had to pick off one of his books the other day off my shelf, The Four Loves, I wanted to look mm-hmm. at something, and I, like, look at some of my notes, and I, I kind of died inside a little <laughs> bit, right? Like, I was just like, oh, my gosh. But honestly, then what I said was it's a moment of uh, piety. It's a moment of gratitude. Sure. Like, Lord, where have you taken me? Yeah. Right? Like, Lord, where have you matured me in this? Mm-hmm. Right? And I think the same thing with Iliad. Like, write your notes out. Don't be afraid. Yeah. Mark it down. Watch your intellect grow. Okay. Uh, one more tip that I have. Oh, boy. Uh, for the Iliad. Okay. Go for um, it. This is a guy, you know, who has, again, who has not read it. Skip the introduction. Skip it. Oh, yeah, we should say that. Um, you know, especially if you're starting in a small group. If you want to lose members very quickly in your small group, <laughs> have everybody read the introduction first. Right. Uh, it's very long. Uh, it, to me, I don't think it really helps. It's not an actual introduction. Right. So the other thing, too, by the way, that if, if you haven't read the Iliad, um, most introductions of classical texts assume you've read it before. And they will ruin huge plot points for you. Right. So and just start book one. Just start at book one. And actually what you should do is just follow our guide, right. which goes question answer. And by the way, like we've read the introduction to Fagel's uh, by Knox. We've read Latimer's. Right. Like, you know, we've cited the things that I think need to be stripped out of those. Um, you know, and our guide's going to go question answer, just a few preliminaries like mm-hmm. we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. And they go straight into book one. And yeah. I think it can really help. Well, I'm pumped. I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to do that. To, to take a deep dive into book one. Right. So one last thing. So two, maybe two last things. Okay. The audience. So we talked about Homer. We talked about the oh, book. Yeah. Okay. Who's he writing to? Or yeah. what's he doing? And we kind of alluded to this uh, quickly, but he's really talking to an aristocratic class of Greeks, mm-hmm. right? And I think this will become incredibly important as we move through the Iliad because what we need to realize is, is that he's writing to these people and these stories are being told to this, this kind of aristocratic class that will pull their genealogies and lineages from people that are in the Iliad. 
Right. And so you're going to notice when you read through there, like, you know, just, just get ready for it. Book. Like second half of book two. Yeah. Adam's favorite book in the whole Woo. Iliad book two. Like you're going to have some sections there that have all the charm and wit of a biblical genealogy. Right. But you have to realize that the reason is like his listeners, like his audience, if you will, are actually no like, oh, I'm related to that person. They're way like so they have these deep dives into mm-hmm. the family trees. Mm-hmm. You got two guys that are gonna get up and they're supposed to be at war and we've got to have ten minutes of introducing ourselves and who our grandfathers are. And then if, you die. And then and, and then one of them dies. So, you know, why? Well, because his audience is incredibly interested in these facts. So one is I think to know his audience and how that actually shapes the text. Okay. Um, the second point is yeah, if you're reading it in a small group, so like if you're gonna take our guide and you're like, okay, I've, you know, I've, I've got my books. I'm going to follow along in the podcast. Like, you know, we're part of that conversation. You know, we're going to love to have you. And I'm going to get some guys together at my house and we're going to discuss this. So I think if you have the guide, two things. I, the preliminaries on Homer, that's fine just to kind of read because obviously you're not going to pull that from the Iliad text itself. Just right. kind of read those through. However, when you get to actual text, I would recommend not, I, I would recommend reading the book first, the book being like a chapter, right? Mm-hmm. So the first chapter. I'd read the chapter first, then I would read the guide. And the reason I recommend that is because like, we want you to grow in your capacity to read these ancient texts yourself. Right. And so then it becomes, a, it becomes a judge or a standard. And so you can read like book one mm-hmm. and say, okay, like this is okay. This is where I think the plot points are. This is what I got out of it. Like I think I've grasped this, or this was confusing. And then if you go back and read the guide, question answer. Mm-hmm. Like then you're able to judge what was your attention to detail according to right. the guide. Yeah, and you'll be like, oh, I actually missed this. I told how how could I miss this? This is what I like about the guide as well as as I've I read I read the chapter or read the book, mm-hmm. and then I go back to the guide, and as I'm going through each question, I'll be like, are you kidding me? How did I miss this? And then I go back. And, and read it and, and, and catch catch those insights. So uh, the guide for me has been incredibly valuable. Even if you're if you, even if you don't have a group of friends that you're you're going through, like hang out with us. Let's do this. Let's let's right. let's let's go through this together. Uh, it's my first time, so I'm looking forward to to doing it. Yeah, and if you are in a group, I would literally just read the question out loud, let people discuss it for a bit, and then maybe read the question. And then you get to sound really smart, <laughs> right? Like, like, don't like, tell them you have this guy. <laughs> And then ask the question, <laughs> right. and then when see see what they all have to say. My, like, my source, actually, my sources say, right, right. So. Okay, very good. Anything else that we need to talk about with Homer? No, I don't think so. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Check us, check out the website, thegreatbookspodcast.com. How do we get the URL? That was incredible. The Great Books Providence, Podcast. Providence. Yeah. Um, check it out, and uh, make sure you share the the episode with with family and friends. All right, thank you, Adam.